Ah, there we go. We need to be people of prayer, especially for those going on mission trips. We've talked about the building relocation as well as those that are going to be involved in that. And also thinking about David and his transition. And I know Neil's not here. He and Kathy are away getting some rest and relaxation in. But I know I speak for him and I can do that with confidence because we have talked with David and we love and appreciate him and be praying for him and his transition as well as the elders, as they mentioned, their pursuit of somebody to come along and do what David was doing and to do it in a great way to continue the great work that's been going on. So as a congregation, let us be people that are praying and petitioning God for the mission trips, for the building relocation, for the summer events that are going on and so many other things to the good and glory of God here at Lehman and stand connected with him as we seek to do those things. I don't know if you've seen this movie before. I'm sure you might have, though. Remember the Titans? It's set in Alexandria, Virginia in 1971. The setting for the movie is this idea of the T.C. Williams high school football team and what they're trying to do is put together a winning season, but there's a lot of tension. They've got a lot of adversity stacked against them, and they're hoping to overcome those obstacles so that they can be successful and do the things that they would like to do as a team. They've got new coaches that they're trying to merge together and unify. They've got different teammates that they're trying to put together on top of the fact that they're just encircled with racial tension that's just about to not only destroy the town, but destroy the team. But they are able to succeed. They break away from society. They go away to some sort of training camp. And there's just this harmony that meshes together and infuses these guys together as a great team. They come back ready for anything, to overcome any obstacle and to succeed. They're ready to face any opponent that they come up against, except there's one problem. They hadn't considered the society that they were coming back to. They were successful, far off and secluded away, but they needed to learn how to live once again in society because the place that they left in Alexandria was very much the same when they returned. That town hadn't gone to a training camp, and so how were they going to function now that they were away from their sort of secluded training camp and back amongst the world that was very much so still divided? And you know how the movie ends, or if you don't, I'm about to spoil it for you. <laughs> they get it together. They succeed as a team. They make lifelong friendships. They change their lives and they change their world. You know, when you open up your Bible to the book of Acts, much of the same thing has happened in the world is fractioned and divided. But the good news is Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. At least that's what Peter says in Acts 2 and verse 36 in the first gospel sermon, that God made this same Jesus, both Lord and Christ, Jesus rose from the dead. And more than that, there's a plan of salvation. And everybody anywhere that responds to that message can not only be saved, but to enjoy all of the spiritual blessings which God offers to all of those that are in Christ. Ephesians 1 and verse 3. The gospel's preached, it's proclaimed throughout the world. People are responding to the gospel and congregations, little communities of people of God, churches of Christ are being scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Several times throughout the book of Acts, Luke gives us these sort of summary statements where he basically says all is well. Things are functioning just like God would have them to. Acts 9.31, Acts 16 and verse 5. But there's a problem. You see, though the church is growing and blossoming and booming in all of those mighty ways, Jesus never died for the church to be secluded away from society and little monastic communities where we're off on our own doing our own thing. Though we're united in Christ, the world that we have to interact with when we come away from these sort of training camp experiences is still very much fractured and divided. If you have your Bible tonight, go ahead and turn it to Acts 15. 
We just had our reading from Acts 15 a moment ago, and that's where we're going to spend our time. In Acts 15, the rubber really starts to meet the road for the church in Jerusalem and really the churches of Christ throughout the first century Roman world. There were two different ways that people thought you should go about living out your Christianity in the first century. On the one hand, you had those who said, listen, if you obey the gospel, you follow Jesus and walk in the light and you'll be saved. But then on the other hand, there were those that came along and said, no, the Gentiles are in. They've got to obey the gospel and be baptized into Christ, but they also have to be circumcised into the law of Moses. So Acts 15 and verse one, there are certain men from Judea that say, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. More than a light disagreement, there is a sharp dissension that arises. Acts 15 and verse two, as Paul and Barnabas basically go to war theologically with these individuals that are saying, you've got to be circumcised and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they've got to figure it out. How are they going to live as the people of God and be God's people in a world that's very different? The gospel's being spread. That's great. But how can they represent the kingdom in the world that's strangely different from them? And so Acts chapter 15, they write a letter. The letter that was read for us a moment ago by Todd in Acts 15, really verses 22 down through verse 29. You could go through the book of Acts and really just try to sprint past this and skip over it. But I would advise us not to do that. Because what we find in Acts 15 is not just their response to the controversy over circumcision. As the apostles and elders of the church of Jerusalem get together and figure out what should we do about this controversy, they're given the guidance by God on what they should do and what they should practice. But more than that, they give us some information that helps us see how should we live as kingdom representatives in the world in which we live. Many of the ideas that flow out of Acts 15, 24 through 29 are basically the rest of the New Testament letters expounded on. What does it mean to be God's person and live for him? It's a book within a book. It's one of the New Testament letters that we skip over because it's tucked within a New Testament book. It's the epistles of the churches of Antioch in Syria and Cilicia. And so tonight what I want us to do is just start in verse 24 and let's just study and see what exactly is taught here about representing the kingdom. Because here's the thing, though our situation doesn't parallel theirs exactly, we've got the same questions. What does it mean to be a faithful Christian? What does that look like in a world that's faithless and where people are antagonistic toward me and you as people of God? What's our responsibility and how can we know when we've done it right? Five things tonight from this epistle, Acts 15, really 24 through 29, 22 and 23 are just sort of introductory material. But what do the apostles say to these Gentile churches about the way that they're supposed to live? And what do those messages have to say to us today about being representatives in a world that's ruined by sin? Here's number one. If we're going to be kingdom representatives first, we've got to reject man-made standards. Look at verse 24. They give the greeting in verse 23 and they say, hey, we're sending Barnabas and Paul and we're also sending Silas and Judas. And then they say in verse 24, because some individuals have gone out from us and have troubled you and upset your minds or unsettled your minds, though we gave them no instructions or no commandment. The first thing you and I need to do if we're going to be individuals that represent the kingdom of God in our world, that's very unchristlike and even post-Christian, some people are saying, is we've got to reject man-made standards. Now, look at verse 24. This is how the letter starts. The apostles write to these Gentile churches and they're saying, hey, individuals are coming along and telling you you have to be circumcised. But notice the last part of verse 24. We never gave this commandment. You don't have to do this. They're troubling you and agitating your minds. You can reject their standards. Before these Christians needed to learn what they had to do to represent God, the first thing they needed to learn and we need to receive is what God doesn't want us to do. 
So Jeremiah 23 and verse 21, God says through the prophet, I haven't sent these prophets yet. They've run. I haven't spoken to them. And yet they have prophesied. Sometimes one of the things that people have been doing for the longest of time is speaking for God where God hadn't spoken. Going all the way back to Genesis three with the serpent in the garden, people are either trying to convince us that God has said things that he hasn't said or that God didn't mean the things that he did say. And so the serpent says to Eve, has God said that you'll die? You won't surely die. God knows that when you eat of this tree, this tree, your eyes will be open and you'll be wise and you'll be like God's knowing good and evil. Genesis three, one through six. And how did that turn out? Or what about the prophet in first Kings 13? God says, you go into this city, you give the message to Rehoboam and you get out of there and you go back home. Another prophet comes along and says, hey, God also spoke to me and he said, you can stay here and eat and actually come into my house. The last part of first Kings 13, 18 says, but he lied to him. He misrepresented God. And that's exactly what these false teachers are doing as they come along and say, hey, you can follow God if you obey the gospel. But you also need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses and the apostles right to stop this before it ever gets going. And if you and I are going to be individuals that represent the kingdom in Bowling Green, Warren County, 2023, the first thing we've got to do is reject man-made standards. And we might think this is easier than it sounds. But the longer you're a Christian, the more you find yourself fighting this reality. The apostles say we didn't give them this instruction. They've gone out and troubled you and unsettled your mind. And they've added things in the Bible that aren't actually in the Bible. Don't let anybody else mislead you. Throughout Jesus's earthly ministry, this is one of the things that got under his skin the most. The Pharisees had PhDs and adding things that God never introduced into the text. And so Matthew 23 and verse four, Jesus says, you bind heavy burdens and grievous to be born and place them on men's shoulders and you won't lift them with one of your fingers. The Pharisees were the kind of guys that would come alongside you and say, listen, you're doing pretty good following God. But I mean, if you really want to be next level, you probably should wash your hands just like we do it. And you probably should fast as soon as we fast and keeping the Sabbath is great, but we've got the Sabbath 2.0. And you got to do things our way. It's as if the Pharisees walked around with the legal pen and pad always ready at a moment's notice to add two more verses to second opinions as they emphasize their own doctrines and their own beliefs. And Jesus would say, let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the ditch. That which comes from the outside and into a person can't defile him. What defiles is that which comes from within. Evil thoughts and murder and adultery and blasphemy, those things come from within a person. And that's how a person is defiled. Matthew 15, 14 through 20. You want to represent the kingdom, then be sure what you are actually following and doing is what the king says and not somebody else's representation of the king. James 4 and verse 12 says there's one lawgiver and one judge who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? If you were a Gentile in the first century, this would have been a struggle for you. Because when these individuals come alongside you and say, hey, you've got to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised. It sounds safe. It sounds conservative. It sounds like it's sound doctrine, but it's a doctrine laced with poison because it's another gospel. Turn your Bible to Galatians chapter one and notice how serious this is. Galatians one, Paul's writing to some churches that he and Barnabas had recently visited on his first missionary tour. In Galatians one, beginning with verse six, Paul says, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven 
preach any other gospel unto you than that which we preach, let him be accursed, as we've said before. So now we say again, if anyone preach any other gospel to you than that which we preach, let him be accursed. And then verse 10 is his punchline. Do I not persuade God or men or am I seeking to please men? If I were still pleasing men, I couldn't be the servant of Jesus Christ. Reject the standards of men. And make sure you're doing things God's way. You want to represent the kingdom? Be able to put a finger on a passage for what you believe and what you practice. Listen, we beg our friends and neighbors to do this, but we need to be honest enough to do it ourselves. I don't know how many times in life you've been pulled over, but maybe if you have, you've used this phraseology before this. Have you ever been pulled over or heard of somebody being pulled over, your child or somebody? Police officer comes alongside them. Hey, you know why I pulled you over? Never answer that question. If you do, you might get two tickets. But somebody says, well, yeah, I was speeding. The police officer says, that's right. You were speeding. And you respond with this sort of phrase or something along these lines. Well, I was just traffic. I mean, I was just going with everybody else. There's a law firm that specializes in dealing with individuals that have these speeding tickets. And on their website, they have a line or several lines along these along this thought process. They say, listen, if you get pulled over and you respond to the officer that you were just going with the flow of traffic, you just admitted that you were committing a crime. Furthermore, other people breaking the law never gives you permission to do so. So if stopped by a police officer, don't worry about arguing over a law or a rule that doesn't exist. Do you have any idea how many Christians are just going with the flow of spiritual traffic? Well, everybody's doing it. And I know it's the right thing because, hey, sound congregation X practices it. And surely he wouldn't mislead us. I mean, this guy, he went to Freed Hardeman or maybe he's got a Ph.D. I don't care if he has the alphabet soup behind his name as far as his credentials. Is he Jesus Christ? And what does the Bible actually say? Well, they told me I couldn't use this translation and they told me not to do this and not to do that. Reject man-made standards and make sure that you don't stand before the judgment bar of God arguing over a rule that really doesn't exist. And so Jesus would say in John 5, 22 and 23, the father's committed all judgment to the son so that all may honor the son, just like they honor the father. Whoever honors the son honors the father who sent him. He that rejects me and receives not my words has one that judges him. The words that I've spoken, those words will judge you in the last day. John 12, 48. We have to do our due diligence to make sure the longer that we're Christians, the reasons why we do the things that we do. It's not because, well, I was always taught or mom said, you know, my preacher back home, he really emphasized. I heard in a sermon one time and all of that's great. All of us have influences. We stand on the shoulders of other individuals. I know I do. But in the end, the reality is if I am going to represent the kingdom, I've got to know the words of the king. That's the criteria for the judgment. That's what really matters. And that's what we're going to be judged by. It's a challenge because if we don't do this, notice what happens. Look at Acts 15 again and notice verse 24. It says their minds were troubled or unsettled. They were robbed of peace. F.F. F. Bruce in his commentary on this says this word terazzo, which means the trouble. He says it was a word sometimes used in Greek literature for the plundering of a city. In this text, what was being plundered was the hearts and minds of Christians. As these Judaizing teachers came along and said, God has said you've got to do some things, but we're going to add a few more. Anybody that comes along and introduces anything other than the gospel of Christ must be rejected. And so if they bring God's standards down and they say, hey, God's not really worried about holiness and God's OK with sin in small increments, just so long as you don't get carried away, reject man-made standards. And if they come alongside and say, hey, God's given you some requirements over here, but he left out a few things. And wouldn't you know it? He sent us to fill in those blanks. Reject man-made standards. 
Mark chapter 7, Jesus has had it with the Pharisees and he says, you reject the commandments of God that you may hold fast to your traditions. They added in extra things and then said, if you really love God, you'll do it our way. And Jesus says, just do it God's way. Never let anybody bring the high and holy standard of God down. But God's standards are high enough. He doesn't need anybody on the ladder up in the ante. Just do it God's way. If we're going to represent in the kingdom, this is where it starts. Acts 15, before they give any commandments, they say, let's talk about what's not on the table. And what's not on the table are the standards that men have decided to introduce on their own. They've troubled you. They've unsettled your minds. We never told them to say any of that. And so let's search the scriptures and make sure we're following what's so. But here's number two. Stay in Acts 15 with me and notice the second thing. Receive God's requirements properly. After they tell them these false teachers went out and they introduced things that we never taught them, they talk about what they're going to do. We wrote a letter and they tell them who they sent in verse 26 and 27. They sent Judas, also known as Barsabas and Silas, men who had risked their lives for the sake of the gospel. And these churches would know Barnabas and Paul because Paul and Barnabas work with these churches. And then they start in in verse 28 and they say, now, here's what the letter's all about. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no other requirements no other burdens than these requirements. Here's the second thing. You want to represent the kingdom? If we're going to be kingdom representatives in a world that's anti-God a lot of times, number one, reject man-made standards, and number two, receive God's requirements properly. The apostles and the elders in Acts 15 get together in this Jerusalem conference, sometimes it's called, and they write this letter to send to the churches. But notice what verse 28 says. It seemed good to who first? What does your translation have? The Holy Spirit and to us. You know why that matters. Because once this letter starts making its rounds among the Gentile churches, what they need to know is this is not a page out of Peter's diary or James theological journal. The Holy Spirit was the one giving them the things that follow. So you get to verse 28 and whatever follows after that, verse 29 and the requirements there, these are not divine suggestions. They're from God. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. It's God's word. David would say in 2 Samuel 23 and verse 2, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his words were on my tongue. Jeremiah 1 and verse 9, God says, I put my words in your mouth. And Peter assures us in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, prophecy never came in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The things in this letter and the rest of the New Testament, they're the words of the Holy Spirit. And if we're going to represent the kingdom, be kingdom representatives, We've got to respond properly to God's word. You know, that's great when it's something I already believe. There are things in the Bible when I read them, I smile. I already want to believe these things and I embrace them. A lot of times I do. But then there are occasions when we run up against things in Scripture that don't naturally flow with our personalities or things that challenge us. And we'll talk about some of those momentarily. And we're kind of made to feel uncomfortable. And it's easy in those moments to say, well, that's just your opinion or that's just your interpretation or that's just the preachers or the elders hobby horse instead of saying, this is the Holy Spirit's words. And we've got to receive the word of God properly. There is a right way and a wrong way to read and receive the Bible. This isn't just an argument for skeptics. Sometimes we talk to people that don't believe that the Bible's from God. And we'll quote 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And rightly so. All scripture is God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we talk about predictive prophecy and scientific foreknowledge and the literary unity of the Bible and its high moral ethic. And we say, listen, this is a divine book, and that's great, but it's more than just an apologetic defense for unbelievers. We need to remind ourselves we are dealing with divine contents, and how we respond to the word of God says everything about us. 
And so they're writing to these churches to say, hey, the Judaizing teachers added things that aren't the word of God. But we're about to tell you what the Holy Spirit said. And to reject this is to reject him. To receive it is to receive him. Jesus would say, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. John 15 and verse 14. If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14 and verse 15. Are we receiving the word of God properly as if it's from God himself? Because it is. How do we do this? What's the right way to receive the word? Here are a few things to keep in mind as you read and receive the Bible. Number one, receive the Bible with an eagerness of mind. That's Acts 17 and verse 11. It says the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all readiness of mind. That means they were eager and hungry. We need that type of reception. Receive the word with meekness. James 1 and verse 21 says, lay apart our overflowing wickedness and receive with meekness and graft the word. What does that mean to receive the word with meekness? It means this. When I approach the Bible, I say to myself, you know what? I could be wrong with all meekness and humility. Hey, I may need to change some things. I don't stand in judgment over the Bible. I stand in submission under the Bible with all meekness. Receive the Bible as a newborn babe receives milk. First Peter two and verse two, he says, receive the word of God as newborn babes and you desire it. Receive the Bible as that which is more precious than silver and gold. Proverbs eight and verse 10. This week, there was a Bible sold, a Hebrew Bible out of New York for thirty eight million dollars. It's eleven hundred years old and it's one of the best manuscripts that we have. They got it for thirty eight million dollars. According to the Bible, they got it for cheap. It was a sale. Because according to the Bible, the scriptures are more precious than silver and gold. Psalm 119 and verse 72, Psalm 119 and verse 127. You can't put a price on it and we need to receive it that way. When we encounter the word of God, we need to be ready to embrace whatever God tells us and receive it more than our necessary food. Job 23 and verse 12. This is what the Gentile churches needed to hear. Judaizing teachers had added things in, but God wasn't trying to burden them. Look at verse 28. He says it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden. Do you realize God is not trying to burden us when we read the Bible? He's trying to release and lift our burden. Sometimes we think about the commands and the challenges of Scripture as if once you start being a faithful Christian, God's adding more things on you. The apostles say the Holy Spirit doesn't want to add anymore. Jesus says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I'm meek and lowly in heart. You'll find rest unto your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. First John five and verse three, John says his commandments are burdensome. He wants you to love God. We would be those individuals that would be representatives of the kingdom. It means we receive the word of God properly. Helen Zeed is a professor at the University of Michigan, Michigan State University. She specializes in nutrition and the history of our reception of food in these United States. She says, do you know that the word we sometimes talk about children's food or a children's meal? It wasn't introduced into the English lexicon until about 1970. There was no children's menu or meal until the 20th century. And so, you know what all children did, according to Zeed, before that, before the children's menu? You know what they did when food was placed in front of them? They just ate whatever they could. There was no picky eater. That didn't come until the 1970s. You know, people just ate whatever you gave them. They didn't have a choice. I'm glad for the children's menu, by the way. What would I do without chicken tenders and fries and cheese pizza? But when it comes to the word of God, we don't get to be picky eaters. We don't get to say, I like this verse and not that verse. I'll do this one, but I won't do that one. I like these commands, but I don't like these commands. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden. And then the verse says, then these requirements, King James or New King James says something like these necessary things. Whatever follows in this text is necessary. 
and we've got to do it. We don't get to pick and to choose. We've got to fully submit. Here's number three. If we're going to be kingdom representatives, we've got to remove idols from our life. And the rest of the the lesson tonight, these last three points come right out of verse 29. He says, here are the things we want you to do. He just summarizes it. James and (coughs) Peter and the apostles, this is the crux of the letter in verse 29 to the churches. That you abstain from meat that's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled. That's number one. Just stay away from idolatry. In the first century world, people's lives were marked by idolatry. And one of the ways they showed their affiliation and their love for idols, it was what they ate. They get together, they worship the idols, and then they'd offer up these sacrifices. And the apostles are writing to the Gentile churches to say, hey, you don't have to be circumcised. You're in the family of God. Nothing else that anybody can add on to what Jesus has said. The gospel is enough. But you've got to get rid of your idolatrous ways. In 1 Corinthians 10, 20 through 22, Paul says, you can't eat at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't drink from the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he is? And then in chapter 11, he launches into this discussion about the Lord's Supper to say, hey, we've got our own meal. We don't need to eat at the table of demons. Stay away from idolatry. And though we don't walk around and see idols temples today, it's still a struggle for us. The last verse in 1 John, 1 John 5, 21, John says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Calvin is right when he says the human heart untrained is an idol making factory. We can't help it. We're worship beings by nature and we will worship someone or something. And we've got cute ways of trying to dress it up. But in the end, it's idolatry. Anything we put above God or in God's place is an idol. And these Gentiles that come into the Christian community, they've obeyed the gospel. They're members of the church. And this letter goes out to say, that's great. But you've got to let your idolatry go. You've got to give up worshiping other gods. Your allegiance is to one. Somebody says, what does that mean for us? It doesn't mean you can't have hobbies and other interests, and things that you like and relish and really enjoy. But it does mean this. As your heart and mind has been trained by the Holy Spirit, by his message, everything else in your life is relegated to his proper place and never rises to the level of devotion that's reserved for Jesus and Jesus alone. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Matthew 5 and verse 6, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be satisfied. We've got to be different. Imagine being a Gentile in the first century. Your whole life, all you've ever done is serve idols. That's all you've ever done. You got a job, there's a guild, there's a little corporation, there's a little group of individuals. And everybody on Fridays, they go and they offer worship to the idols. And they say everybody in your family worships idols. It's what they do. And then one day, these preachers from Palestine, Paul and Barnabas, or Paul, Silas, and Timothy, come to your town and preach the gospel in your city. You hear what they're saying, you've never heard anything like it. You obey the gospel. And now your life's changed. It's not that you don't believe in God anymore, but for the first time in your life, you believe in the right one. That's exactly what happened in Thessalonica. First Thessalonians 1, 8 through 10, Paul says, when you receive the word which you heard from us, you turn from those false idols to God, the living and the true God. And you gave up idolatry. And that's what made the Christians different. Of all the people in the first century world, they were monotheistic. They worshiped one God. And it is what should make us different in our world. As people around us bow down to the shrines of politics and sports and entertainment and materialism, we should be different. We should look different. People should look it. And I know we've got cute ways when we find ourselves bowing at those altars. We've got cute ways to finesse our way around and say, well, I'm not really I mean, I'm not worshiping. Hey, this isn't really idolatry. I mean, I don't have my full devotion into these things while we continually rob God of the glory, which is only his. Andy Crouch on his book in his book on idolatry says, you know, serving idols is funny. 
In the beginning, they asked for nothing and promised everything. And by the end of the exchange, they asked for everything and promised nothing. We get fooled. And so we need to get rid of idolatry. We need to be like the three Hebrew boys. That when the music stops playing, if the whole world around us is bowing down, the Christians are still standing, Daniel 3, 6 through 13. They just wouldn't bow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, you can do whatever you want to us. We won't be switching gods. We will be serving a God of one. And they write this letter to these folks and they say, hey, I don't want to see you at idols temples. You're different now. You're changed. You're transformed. When Paul went to Ephesus in Acts 19, he preached the gospel there. And they worshiped the goddess of Diana previously, but they took their books and their curious arts and they burned them. One commentator said it was probably over $100,000 in books. And you just saw the flames going up. And in the heart of every Christian, there should be two fires always burning. There needs to be one fire of things that we just find ourselves throwing on the trash heap. You're not going to have first place. It's what Paul did in Philippians 3, 7 and 8. He says, whatever things were gained to me, I count it loss for Christ. Not that we rid our lives of those things, but we say you can't have first place on the trash heap you go. Hey, I'm giving too much time and attention to this. This crowd, not my activity in the local church, on the trash heap you go. And there needs to be a fire burning of things that we will not allow to be first place. And then there needs to be another fire. A Romans 12 and verse 11 type fire where we have a zeal for the Lord, which keeps us on fire, which cannot be quenched because we serve the true and the living God. So they write to the Gentile churches and they say, reject man-made standards. Don't let anybody impose on you things that we never taught you. Number two, receive the word of God properly. Whatever God says, you have to do it. Number three, remove idols. Here's number four. Refrain from unholiness. They talk about idolatry in three different ways, things strangled, food with blood, and they talk about meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And then just in a blanket statement, sexual immorality. It was just a common practice in the first century that people were going to engage in sexual immorality and they really had no restraint. It sounds a lot like our time. And the Christians were going to be different because they weren't going to engage. They heard the words of Jesus when he said, you've heard it said by them of old time, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whosoever looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And Jesus says, you've got to be different. And so in this letter, they include, we don't want to hear about you guys practicing sexual immorality. We don't want you practicing things that are ungodly. And this isn't exhaustive. You read the rest of the New Testament letters and really sexual immorality in Acts 15, 29 stands for all of the works of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. And if we're going to be representatives of the kingdom, our lives have to be different. This word, sexual immorality, in the Greek, it's the word porneia, and it's used throughout the New Testament, but it's found in three places that's particularly interesting. Go to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at three brief, quick places where this word is found in something that you always find associated with this word, sexual immorality. Romans chapter 1, and it's in verse 29. He talks about adultery or fornication or sexual immorality in this list of sins that he says you can't practice. But would you notice in Romans 1 and verse 18, the way this list starts, he says the wrath of God is poured out from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He's saying, hey, don't practice this because the wrath of God is coming. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Go to Ephesians chapter 5 and notice verse 3. You're going to find the same thing. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3, Paul's going to say, hey, I don't want to find you doing any crude talking or jesting or any sexual immorality or fornication. And then in Ephesians 5 and verse 6, he's going to say, because the wrath of God is being poured out on people that sons of disobedience. One more. Go to Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, he says, put to death what's earthly in you. And he lists several sins. But one of the sins in Colossians three and verse five is sexual immorality is fornication. 
And what he says next in verse 6 is what he said in Ephesians 5 and verse 6. The wrath of God's being poured out. God's anger bubbles forth on individuals that practice any sort of ungodliness. Why is he? He's not writing this to the people in Rome, in the Roman Empire throughout. He's writing it to Christians because we still live here. We might be in our little training camp on Sunday and Wednesday, but we still live here. And so he's saying, don't let anybody ever fool you. God's wrath is poured out on people that practice these things. And you don't want to be found in that number. Live a life of holiness. Live a life that's different. Because people are going to make up their minds about God based on the way we live. I know we say this sometimes and it's just not true. Hey, people should just receive the truth. Doesn't matter what other people do. Don't let anybody stop you. Jesus never said that. In fact, what Jesus says is you sanctify me in your heart. You live the right way. You all be unified and be one. And then the world might believe that God sent me. People will make up their minds about whether they ever want to engage in Christianity based on the way we live. And so the apostles say, hey, make sure you practice holiness. You go to a shoe store, shoe carnival, you go to Foot Locker, you go to any shoe store. And what you're going to find are shoes up there on the display. It's normally a clean shoe and it's representative, really. You're not going to leave most likely with the shoe that's on the display, either off to the side or underneath that shoe or in the back. They have different sizes. But you know what the shoe on display is all about. That shoe is to say, do you like what you see? Because if you like what you see and if you're attracted to what you see, we've got your size. I know Jesus is the example written at the top of life's page. But if you're a Christian, you are the shoe that's on display. And when people look at your life and my life, they are going to make up their minds if they even want to pose the question. Do you have that Christianity in my size? Do I want to be a part of this movement? Do I want to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ? People are going to make up their minds about the shoes in the back based on what they see in us. And so Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 2, you're our epistles written in our hearts, known and read of all men. You're the example that people are going to look at. We either repel people or we draw them in. There's no in between. And so we've got to refrain from unholiness in our speech, in our conduct, the way that we live, the things that we say, the way we treat people. Because God's watching. But it's not just God. Other people are watching us, too. Matthew 18 and verse six, Jesus says, if you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it'd be better for you that a millstone. One of the harshest things Jesus ever said, it'd be better for you that a millstone. If somebody looks at your life and says, oh, I would have been a Christian, but oh, I worked with him. I would have obeyed the gospel, but I, I went to school. I know how Hey, I work for her. I know how this it'd be better for you to. Cast the millstone about your neck and be drowned into the depths of the sea. They write this letter and they say, you don't have to be circumcised. You've got to receive God's word, get rid of idolatry and refrain from unholiness. And here's the last thing. Number number five. If you do that, you'll receive the reward of the faithful. In Acts 15 and verse 29, the last thing they say is, if you do these things, you will do well. If you keep away from these things, you'll do well. Farewell. If you do what? If you do what we've told you, you'll do well. What does that mean? It means more than just thumbs up. Good job. It means you will have the approval of God. Jesus says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those that do the will of my father, which is in heaven. And if you do that, you'll receive the reward. We will be representatives of the kingdom if we do the things contained in this brief epistle to the Gentile churches. And he says, you'll do well. This meant for the Gentiles more than just harmony with their Jewish brethren. And, hey, everybody's going to be able to get along. It meant that God would smile on them. But it all came down to what they did. 
If we say we know God, but we don't keep his commandments, John says you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. In the end, our Christianity comes down to our compliance with the word and will of God. Somebody says, I thought I was saved by grace through faith. You are. But that never excludes works. Jesus knows whether you and I take him seriously based on the way that we live. And if you were in one of these churches in Syria, in Antioch of Syria or Pisidia, and this letter came there and you heard Barnabas or Paul get up and read it, you could have memorized it. I mean, you could have known the letter backward and forward, but that didn't mean you were in compliance. I think the challenge for us, the more acquainted we become with Scripture, is that we don't confuse reading well and remembering well and knowing well for doing well because they're not the same things. James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Why throw in that deceiving yourselves? Because sometimes when I read the Bible, I feel good. I think, well, I've done it. And that's just the beginning. That's merely being informed about what God wants from us. And so they say, if you keep from these things, you do well, not just here in this letter, doing this letter. When you put it into practice, then and only then do you represent the kingdom well. When you do what we want you to do, when you live a life in response to Jesus, Jesus says you're approved. You say, but other people might. Jesus says you're approved. Forget man-made standards. Bring your life into conformity with the will of God, and then you do well. Jesus told his disciples, one day Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. But he'll only say that to servants who have actually done well, Matthew 25, 21. And if we want to be in that number, we better get busy. Acts 15 is a letter within a letter. It's a book within a book, really. And it's challenging. It's saying, hey, life's great. You've become Christians, and that's great for you. But you can't stay secluded off. You can't stay broken off in your own little communities because guess what? You live in a world that doesn't play by God's rules, and yet you still must live for God. We talked about remember the Titans at the beginning of the lesson. You know, the challenge for them wasn't really just to get along in the training camp away from their society. The challenge was, were they going to maintain that unity when they were introduced back into a world which hated everything that they were doing? And the challenge for us is not merely to be fueled up when we come into the assembly, as great as this is, and we shouldn't miss it for the world, literally. But the challenge for us is, when we get out amongst the others, will we still live like people who have been drastically transformed because we've had an encounter with the living God? If we do that, we do well. Maybe tonight you need to enjoy the first part of this, and that is obeying the gospel, repenting of your sins, and being immersed in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's where this starts. When you do that, he washes away your sins and adds you to the kingdom. It's our custom to end lessons this way, and I think it's a good custom. We should continue to remind people that this is what it takes to become a Christian. Turn away from sin, be immersed in water, have your sins forgiven. You can obey the gospel, and Jesus Christ will forgive your sins. If you've done that and you need the prayers of the church, we'd be happy to pray with you and pray for you. If you need to respond, come now together we stand and as we sing.